body in front of him. Trying to look, he throws it alley in the hole! It's a post-game two edition of the Just Basketball Show. I'm Brendan Clean. That's Chris Manning. Hit follow or subscribe wherever you're finding the show. We're here to talk about the NBA Finals. The Miami Heat win in a very unexpected fashion, 111 to 108. It goes down to the wire. Jamal Murray hits a couple awesome pull-up, step-back, big three-pointers. The... Denver Nuggets do not call a timeout. The Miami Heat do not foul. We get a one last chance with another Murray three that clangs out and the Heat snag a game one, a game two win. The first game, Chris, that the Denver Nuggets have lost at home this entire postseason. We're going to have our three things that decided game two as we did after game one. We're also going to talk about how to fix the Detroit Pistons to close out the show and continue our offseason coverage. But I think where we should start, Chris, more so than any of that, is losing a game at home when you're the favorite and you're not only the game favorite, but the series favorite, I think is going to lead to some panic. I think it's going to lead to some second guessing. I think people are going to be really worried about the Nuggets considering they're already predisposed to judge this team pretty harshly. Uh, Is this a game that if you are Michael Malone, if you are Nikola Jokic, if you are anybody in that organization that makes you feel like you need to make some changes and this is going to be a long series that you need to prepare yourself for, or was this a blemish that they'll get right back uh, hitting the ground running in game three? I'm going to be a coward and say both because I think both that this could go into a long series, but I don't come away from this game thinking that this is really something that bodes significantly in a negative way for Denver. Like I, I think what Miami did in this game was really good. They got a lot out of Jimmy, got a lot out of Bam. They had Struce get hot early. They got Duncan Robinson hot, hot in the fourth. And Denver had Jokic, and, and Miami did a great job of kind of shutting down a lot of the off-ball stuff versus Jokic. But I still come away from this game, Brendan, thinking Miami is going to have to still adjust more, still kind of have to battle more. Like, I think I, I felt, I feel similar to how I felt after game one. The process that Denver has and what they are really good at, centered on Jokic, I think will win out in this series. It may go a little bit longer now. I think Miami is is that well coached. Maybe I, in, in picking them in five, I undersold that a little bit. I think that's very possible. But I don't come away from this game thinking the formula of what Denver is won't work against them. I think this was a really, really good Miami performance. They hit a ton of threes, and yeah. Jimmy was aggressive. I, I don't. The history has told us that I don't know if we're getting those recent history specifically. I don't know how much we're getting that consistently over the next seven games. Are we going to get that in game three? Lord knows. It was a game, I think, for Miami where a lot of the things that we came out of game one saying they need to do X. If they do X, they'll win. Why did X not happen? Kind of all those boxes got checked and, you know, some of the just Miami Heat bullshit continued of, you know, they open the fourth quarter when Denver knows it needs to really push and you have a Caleb Martin corner three out of nowhere. You know what I mean? Or Max Struess going from 0 of 9, 0 of 8, whatever it was in the game one and in the first quarter specifically of game one to hitting like four of five threes in the first quarter of this game. So it's like, yeah, they executed a game plan. They had a lot of things go right, but they also still got a little bit of luck. I think we all would agree. On the Denver side, it's kind of like to me, if KCP doesn't foul two three-point shooters, if they correctly call a Bam Adebayo goaltend that did not get called, you know, the margin was thin enough for all of that to feel like, well, it could have gone either way. And I think if I'm a Nuggets fan, if if they had not made their final push like they did, I would have felt a lot worse. Because I think it was with like a 21-9 to 9 run, whatever the run that Miami went on to go up 10. I think that's when I texted you, like, Denver needs to win this. And what mm-hmm. I meant is like they, you can't lose a game to one run. And it felt like that was where we might have been headed. But then Denver did come back and even it up and have a chance at the buzzer. And so that to me is where you feel like, yeah, it sucks to lose at home. But at the same time, it was a game that could have gone either way. And they at least like didn't roll over. It wasn't like Den- Miami figured something out and that was it. This game was topsy-turvy, I, I think, in general. Game. It's like my... 
A very weird game. Miami gets up 11 early. Denver goes on this like run that I, I had a tweet that I didn't send, which is good because Twitter's bad. But um, although you are out here outing me on my uh, on my notifications and Brendan, I remind you, East Coast time zone is just it's just a life where it's a lifestyle out here. Are you sleeping out here early during the game? No, it's just no. I just have them on at like 930 because I'm, oh, wait, I'm so just, it was auto. Yeah, it. yeah, okay. yeah. That's it's just better. auto. Yeah, it's more acceptable. Yeah, it's, I, I it's just auto. It, it's just auto. So like the if I just things blow up, I'm just like it shuts it down and it like shuts off Twitter and stuff on my phone. So I'm like not just doom scrolling. It makes harder for me to doom scroll. I should say because I still do it because you know bad person. But like Denver, Denver went on this run that I was like, oh, and with the Murray dunk and like getting up yeah. 15, I was like, this is the kind of thing that like we will look at when we think about the series and when they win the title. And it's like, yeah, that was a run that won them a game where they got themselves in a hole early and fought their way out of it. And it was like I had like that thing in my head. Yeah. And then Miami, it just didn't matter. Like they just got erased. Like all of it just kind of got erased. It was peak NBA finals where I think people were like, this is the most overwhelming Nuggets team. This is the most overwhelming team we've ever seen. This series is over. What a complete just shellacking that we're watching. And then by the end, it's like, yeah, Denver really messed around. This is one they shouldn't have lost. This series is going to be really close. It's just, it's hilarious when we only have one game to focus on uh, what we do to ourselves here. But uh, let's get into our three things that decided well, game the, two. Go just, ahead. Just a quick quick fact that I, I think is worth noting as like a, a narrative point of this series sure. a little bit. Denver's offense was more efficient in this game than it was in their game one win. Mm-hmm. Just, just, just a thing. Jokic has forty-one. I think there will be discourse about like, did the Heat tilt the series because they made Jokic a score? Like, is that that that's like going to be a talking point Monday, Tuesday on the big shows? Yeah, that's not. I, that's just nonsense. That's just nonsense. Yeah, I think this. I think this game went the way it did because Miami just played a lot better and made a lot more shots. I really don't yeah. feel like Denver. I mean, Jokic had a couple turnovers, the zone work, like, but that's just part of Miami playing well. They, they do a zone really well. I don't, again, feel like that's Denver just sort of breaking down or, or screwing up. I think two guys on Denver we can talk about had, had significantly worse games, but overall, I don't think it was that significant. And you look, you know, uh, fast break points, 18 to five for the Nuggets, offensive rebounds, nine to eight in favor of Denver free throws in favor of Denver. So a lot of the possession stats you and I were going to talk about if Denver had won, like they went in, in the nuggets favor. It just, it takes that one run. And then if you can hold on, then that's the difference between winning and losing. But um, our first thing that decided game two is that the heat played their game. And so we were just beating around the bush there. Let's get to it. I think the place that Mm -hmm. I think you have to start is the stars. You mentioned them a minute ago. I would say we saw a blueprint of how Jimmy can be more impactful without being great. Is that fair to say? I think so. I think so because he took five free throws. A peak Jimmy Butler game is like 12 free throws, right? A peak Jimmy Butler game is that. And to his credit or like, or like whatever, I don't know if we want to necessarily credit all the time for like foul hunting. I, I get if people feel a certain way about that. He was like looking to get contact more than he got calls for, right? Like he was like there was times where he's clearly going in and wasn't really planning on shooting. He's planning on getting a foul and like either there's a good play made, there's no call, whatever it is. But he had 21 and nine, had one turnover versus the nine assists. He's penetrating. He's actually aggressively playing with the ball and he gets the free throws. And, and then he has stri- his little stretches, hits the corner three, gets the three-point play in the next Miami offensive possession. It wasn't peak Jimmy takeover game. like It wasn't like how he eviscerated the Bucks, but it was enough with him being very good and more assertive than he was in game one. And that, it felt like it made things easier for everybody else. It felt like it Decisive made too, things for... Right? Like, that's kind of yeah, where well, I, and I... Yeah. Yeah. But I, but I think, like, you go to the fourth quarter... I think I don't know if the Duncan Robinson like 10 point barrage in the fourth quarter where he's cutting in and moving stuff happens unless they kind of are a little fearful of Jimmy and fearful of some of the other stuff. Miami actually got into it. That is centered on what Jimmy is and what Jimmy does. Yeah, I think they ran the Jimmy Bam pick and roll. It felt like more. I don't know if it actually was. Maybe it just worked better. So it felt like it happened more often because it just it impacted the game at a higher level. I thought that um jimmy you could tell was even committed to executing their game plan of taking more pull-up threes and that was one thing in game one where gabe vincent reined a bunch of those in 
and Jimmy and the rest of the team did that again tonight. Caleb, uh, sorry, Kyle Lowry, Gabe Vincent again, and Jimmy were all doing that when they were running pick and roll. And as far as the other guys, I, I would say who were receiving the passes on those assists, the Heat were just systematically just destroying the Denver defense. And I think that's the single most thing coming out of this for the nugget, the Nuggets that would really worry me is there was a really good thread by this account that I just found today and, and, and uh, followed. And then it ended up being like completely uh, foresight filled where he was talking about the way that the Heat were basically, or the Nuggets were basically overhelping in game one in order to protect Jokic from having to uh, hedge quite as much so they could drop Jokic, send early extra help when the Heat kind of weren't expecting it and weren't spaced right, and how that was allowing the Nuggets to get away with some of what they were doing. And so tonight, of course, because Spolster's a genius, these guys are vets and they're shooters all over the court, they spaced the right way, they had it prepared, they knew where the pass was needing to go, and they got it there. And I think when you see an initial pick and roll or some sort of drive and kick stuff flow right into that Jimmy or really Robinson bam two man game or Struce bam two man game on the left wing or the right wing after a ball reversal and Jokic is like on his third or fourth effort defensively that's just like panic mode for the Denver Nuggets and it happened all the time tonight like I would say 10 of the threes that Miami got were the byproduct of just like concerted effort to find the right place for the ball to get and make the shot once they once it got there they also hit 48.6%. Yeah. Which is like a very, that's it, it is just like a really high number. Sure. It is like they played their game and the process for them is right. And like they got the free throws thing, which they go went from two free throws to 20. Yeah. Like that, that in itself, they made, they made Brandon the number of free throws. That is a difference from game one to game two. They made 18 free throws in this game. That is, that is like an insane. KCP just, helped him out. Six of those were him being <laughs> a dummy. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's a, that's a good way to kind of hit on this as well, because I don't, I don't think this was a particularly sound defensive game from several key nuggets. I, this wasn't a good KCP defensive game and that that's troubling considering you kind of expect him to be a rock solid three knee guy. I thought this was often a bad Jamal Murray defensive game. I didn't think he was as particularly as kind of locked in and kind of saw to seen him. And I thought this was a bad Michael Porter jr. Defensive game. Yeah, he was. Well, so he I think to, to bring it back to Jimmy, because I do want to keep on him. Yeah. Yeah. That was the other thing he did. Right. Is he took Murray into the post and he was attacking mm-hmm. mismatches at least a little bit. And I would say a handful of his free throws came from just getting a mismatch in the post and and making them foul him. And then Michael Porter Jr. was a complete culprit of a lot of that ball movement leading to threes stuff. It just felt like the Nuggets did not know where they needed to be once a possession got to its second or third action when the Heat were really locked in offensively. And a lot of their guys just got caught fouling, out of place, overhelping, just completely in no man's land. How would you describe the Heat's formula for making it here? Brendan, Was it is it this? Like maybe like the dial... And Jimmy is dialed up to like an 11 in certain instances instead of like, this is at like a seven, a six and a half, something like that. Mm-hmm. But like, I to me, this feels like this is the heat formula. Yeah. It's like make a bunch of threes. You get a little lucky with the other team and you're incredibly well coached. That feels like the formula. Like I, nothing about this feels just like this just feels like the what the heat are and how like if they're going to make this a series. It's going to be this. I think my, it's just the question is like, okay, what does Jimmy look like in game three? Because we've seen the the motion of the ocean with him a little bit. We've seen the ups and downs. But like, if this is the baseline of what he's going to be games three and four at home, you would feel pretty good if you're Miami, I think, no? Yeah, I think you would. I mean, I, I agree with you that I think this is this is the the blueprint. What they did tonight is it, it's re, it's more replicable, I think, than expecting Jimmy to have to kind of be the savior every night. And it was also just... Um, more, it just looked more like what we've seen them do over and over. And I think the, the last thing on Jimmy that I think has to also happen, and it leads to our next point here is he guarded Jamal Murray, which when I said at the beginning, like a lot of the stuff we said needed to happen coming out of game one. Yeah. Jimmy getting to the free throw line, 
Um, obviously, their shooters making shots, namely Struess, et cetera, more pull-up threes, attacking the, the Nuggets defense in more creative ways. Jimmy guarding Jamal Murray was number one, I think, on that list, at least as far as what we were just confused by, right? And in the first quarter of this game, Jamal was 0 of 3 from the field, three assists, one turnover. He had a flurry in the second quarter, but I think that was a lot largely when, when Butler was not on him or a lot of stuff that was kind of in transition or off of broken plays where Jamal was able to cook. He had a shot over Bam, he had the dunk, and he got eight points in that second quarter. And then in the fourth quarter, it was just like absurd off an offensive rebound, off of a, another broken play, these pull-up threes and whatnot. Um, but Jimmy guarding Jamal as well as he did it's not going to work all the time. It's probably not going to even be his matchup all the time. But if he can disrupt their second best player to this extent, that's huge. And if he has a gas tank for this, here we go. Like that that is the kind of a thing that Miami can turn to that could change the series a little bit. We could see more games where Jokic has like three assists. I would curiously like the potential assist star for Jokic, but he has four assists in this game. He has five turnovers. I think like there's a war. I don't think like that is going to happen much the rest of the because it's Jokic. Like I just don't expect him to be that. But if Butler can like be on Murray, it is going to muck things up. And we say that as, as acknowledging and saying that like the, the Nuggets offensive rating was better than it was in game one, but it felt harder. Like it felt harder, and I think it, Jimmy. Yeah, Jimmy is the Jimmy's just the kind of guy that if he is playing well, and he does this, even if it is not like a plus Jimmy Butler, he may, he will make everything harder for the other team. And I think that to me is like the through line of this. It's just like everything stems from him giving you forty minutes and giving you something close to like a a a, a pretty good. This is like a B plus Jimmy Butler game. Like they're so, but if but he gives you B plus, it's much harder to be Miami. Well, and I think we know that if, if if Miami wasn't up double digits toward the end of that game, and obviously Denver did come back with some crazy shot making, but if if they needed something more from him offensively, we know he has the fourth quarter of game six where he just BSs his way into like 10 points out of nowhere. Game six against Boston. Like we know he has that. And so, you know, that's that's always there. So he had 21, nine and four tonight and didn't really have to have his foot on the gas at the very end of the game when we know he normally would find something extra in, inside of him. So let's go to Jamal Murray. Our, our, our second lesson, the second thing that decided this game was, I think Jamal Murray just wasn't quite enough, and that might sound obvious to say about somebody who had 18 points, but it's more so that I think what he did, especially in the fourth quarter and second quarter when he really had his best moments, that is what is going to need to be like the antidote to how aggressive and physical Miami's defense was. Cause that's the other thing about the heat that we can say to transition out of them is like they were mm. rough, physical, forceful defensively tonight. Like on the catch, you saw two bodies. If you drove, you were getting, you know, bumped by three guys. And like at the end of the day, yeah, Joker doing what he did. He had a bunch of tough baskets. That's important. But it can't just be him. And Jamal Murray showed, and we all we already knew he can make those shots. So it's just a matter of him doing that. There's something too, I think, baked in with Murray where he can be a little bit inconsistent. Yeah. Like he can have he can have games like this. He can have stretches like this. That is I think he he is perfect for Jokic because Jokic will kind of aid him to get him going. Jokic will kind of buoy him a little bit at times. I think that like their chemistry in the pick and roll, their chemistry in the handoffs, that I think gets Murray going and gets him hot. I, Brendan, I thought he was going to kind of fully erupt and get kind of get out of his shell a little bit when he had that dunk. And then he had the two couple buckets after, but it did. I thought that was going to be the catalyst to like Murray takeover mode. Um, yeah. I, I also thought they, I also thought at the end of the game, he was obviously going to probably be the guy to take that three. Like that, that, that folly that you're, it's probably going to be him. That's where, like, I wonder you get him a better look off of a timeout and set him up. Cause he's not exact. Where I think, like, this game reveals something about Murray to me a little bit or kind of reinforces something about him. That may, again, this goes back to, I think, his partnership with Jokic. He's never going to be like the, he is, he is strong enough at times 
and has moments where like he had that bucket on Bam that you and I were like fawning over over text because he it's the footwork, it's the composure, it's the ability to step back and, and make the shot and stick it and have the composure. But it's never it's not consistent. And then like when he gets like in kind of one on one isolation scorer mode, or he that's how he has to kind of create against a really set defense or stronger defenders like Jimmy. Things just get harder for him, and like he took one free throw in this game. Like they're, you know, he's not getting aggressive. He's not getting downhill. It's especially when you look at the rest of the scoring that Denver got. It's kind of one of those games where like I, the Murray dial, whatever that is, whatever you do, need to kind of figure that out with him. You would have kind of thought, okay, like this, this feels like a Murray takeover moment, and we've seen him do it, but he's it's just like a little bit inconsistent with him. And yeah. maybe it's Butler. Maybe, maybe it's the zone. I would curious to see like what they had to say about the Miami zone because I thought it worked better in this game than, it had, than I would have expected too, frankly. And maybe that's throwing them for a loop as well. Yeah, I think in this game, it, it kind of just denied them from getting into their actions. And then obviously Jokic had a few turnovers off of it that were uncharacteristic for him, just kind of throwing the ball the wrong direction to somebody who wasn't there. It was kind of, you know, getting in his way. I think even the, the zone making him have to drive through bodies or put the ball on the ground, that's, you know, we know he can do it, but Jokic is a guy where it's like most of his scoring is going to be a jumper or a deep post where he just kind of uses his footwork and physicality to get there. He's not really a guy who's like face-up dribble drive like Amari Stoudemire offense you know what I mean that's that's not that's not Jokic's game so I thought that affected him and then yeah I think like you were saying with the two-man game a lot of the touches that Murray gets are going to organically come off of Jokic initiating or Jokic getting into a comfortable space and then what happens from there but yeah I mean when you watch Jamal Murray make that shot over Bam or even the kind of like leaner that he had off the glass the I think it was his first first basket of the fourth quarter where it was just like a one-handed his left hand never even touched the ball. Like he just kind of dribbled up the the side of the paint and then got it off the glass and, and in on just, you know, complete gravity defying stuff. Very Kyrie-esque. And those are the types of shots that can beat all the defense that we're talking about. And it, it so I guess my question with Jamal, to me, it felt like, and he did have 10 assists. We should give him credit. 10 assists, one turnover. Mm-hmm. Pretty pretty good stuff. Jokic had only four assists well, and, and five turnovers. And, the, and there, there was that stretch, Brandon, where they went up and Jokic was sitting. And, like, it was kind of the Murray show at that point. And, like, maybe, like, we, again, like, we could just feel very differently if, like, this game, if the Heat are, like, 5% less deadly from three and the ball bounces yeah. the other way. And it's, or like, the KCP yeah. threes in the goal 10, like I said. I mean, the yeah. margin was so yeah. tight. Um, yeah. What I was going to say with Jamal is like, to me, it felt like this was a game where it was an approach thing, not a playing badly thing. Like if he had come in knowing Miami's defense is going to be bringing it, they're going to be much more locked into what we're trying to do. They're going to still do the zone, but maybe even, you know, more creatively, they're going to have love out there from a size standpoint, all these different things. And I just need to be in tough shot maker mode from start to finish. I kind of think he might've just scored 30 because I think he was, he was kind of in his bag tonight and he was play, like he was getting to his spots. He was playing his game. And when he really turned that on, it worked. It more just felt mm-hmm. like he didn't turn it on enough. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. I, I guess like the word I would ask in in thinking a little bit about like where he what you do is what's the what are the counters? Like what what are the ways this works differently? I think number one, the mentality thing I think you hit on is right. And I think number two, I, I I like the little stretches where like Aaron Gordon brought up the ball. Yeah. I think just like you relieve pressure by not having him have to be the one to bring up the ball or Jokic to be the one to bring up the ball. I think that can really organically relieve some pressure and give you a chance to get moving and at least give yourself a little bit of a window to kind of figure that out a little bit so that that's where I would start with him well, especially um, it just felt like the heat were not or the, the nuggets weren't ready for Kevin Love it just didn't feel like they were expecting that he would be out there instead and that Gordon would be guarded by him and to me it's kind of similar in a way to what we saw Gordon do when Anthony Davis was guarding him although obviously for that it was more so like getting Davis out of the paint and having Gordon be a screener or a ball handler just to occupy Davis but in this case it's like no, you actually do want to make Kevin Love guard you. And it didn't feel yeah. like they were kind of ready to just like engage Kevin Love as a defender. 
and make it hard for them to play him. They figured it out with Cody Zeller. They completely obliterated Cody Zeller when he was on the court in this game, but it it felt like the Kevin Love part of it, they were just, I it's crazy to say surprise. We all thought he might play in this game, but it just didn't think, it didn't feel like they flipped the switch to like attack Kevin Love when Gordon was obviously more than capable of doing it. Yeah, that's that's a tough that doesn't super reflect well on <laughs> Denver for for prepping because it look Kevin Love is he's made the he's an NBA legend he's going to be a Hall of Famer he's got a very specific skill set in this point at this point it's rebounding it is throwing outlet passes it is taking charges and he kind of just did those things in this game and it's like what he's going to do defensively and and what how you can exploit it is it's kind of like there's one way you can do it, right? Like, there's not like, it's not like he's coming in and giving you varying looks. Like, he's kind of, kind of coming to do one thing defensively. It seems like that shouldn't be something that, okay, let's say it throws you off the first couple of possessions. Like, the first time out, it, that feels like something you should be able to look at and say, we know how to attack this. Like, this isn't something we can't overcome. I mean, I think but it's just, maybe use, it's, it's just like using his man in what they're doing. I think that, you know what I mean? Which, it's like, if you do that, yeah. he's not going to be able to keep up with you. Although he did have, he contained MPJ on an ISO at one point, and I was uh, my jaw was on the floor. But like, I think that's all that it is. It's just Aaron Gordon's not always involved in the offense. Which he's is spacing, or he's in the dunker you, spot, or whatever. So it's like you have to make a concerted decision to say, "Hey, we're going to try to attack Kevin Love by using Aaron Gordon," and they just didn't. Which is a thing of the Denver offense that they don't love to hunt in the way some other teams do. The the way the Heat do, let's say, or some of the other teams that have that are built differently, I think, with some of the Apex Predator wings or, or shooting, like, really dominant scoring guards. Other teams kind of love to hunt and kind of call that stuff out and pick at it and pick at it and pick at it until you either just, like, live with it or, or switch to something else. They, they force the adjustment. That is just not the way Denver plays. It kind of makes them, like, a, a different fit to what the playoffs are. But if you're ever going to do it, hey, I think I would do it now, and I think I would do it with Murray on Kevin Love. I think I would. I would trust that, right? Like, you you would trust that. Yeah, I think so. To answer your question, I feel like Murray, a Murray Gordon, more Murray Gordon action. And those guys can can do both sides of a pick and roll. They can be involved in dribble handoffs, whatever it is, because uh, they're both ball handlers. They're both actually pretty big for their position. And, you know, they have the chemistry and, and know how to do that. I think the other thing that can maybe take us to the, the third thing that kind of decided this game that we have here is, the last part of what didn't allow Murray or prevented Murray from being the best version of himself is I think Jokic was in scoring mode. And that is going to always be the give and take. That is always going to be the back and forth that happens is it's really hard for a player, even somebody as great as Jokic, to be both these table setter for everybody else to get them comfortable and to get them open looks and consistently kill mismatches and look to score and take advantage of the mm-hmm. opportunities there. It's asking a lot for somebody to have, you know, 40 points and 15 assists just to get you a win. That's really not reasonable. And so part of why I think Murray only had 15 shots is because the Heat effectively got Jokic to be more aggressive, not only to punish their defense, but also to get back into the game, which is what they eventually had to do at Denver. So that to me is part of of the dynamic there too. The best version of the Nuggets is when they're both a little more even in terms of shot attempts. And that was obviously not the case tonight. Jokic took almost double the amount that Murray did. But what do you think of, of these games where now where Jokic has had to score and uh, embraced scoring because he had one and I believe game four against Minnesota where he scored 43. He had another one against Phoenix in game four where he had 53. And now this one where he had, uh, what is it, 41. You want to know the thing that all of those games have in common? They lost them all. So it's kind of crazy to say it works. Yeah. But that's a pattern at this point. The the best games that opposing teams have had against the Nuggets is when they get Jokic to do basically this. I, I am of two minds of it, Brendan. Number one, I think you were right that like, it's a pattern. And I think if we want to say that, like, making Jokic... I, I think it is not as simple to say you make Jokic score, you can beat the Nuggets. Because I think, like, there will be games, and there are games, regular season games, I'm sure, where he's had big score nights and they win. 
what I think what I think it does though is it takes them it, this is like the way you take the nuggets out of what they are I think when you make Jokic have to decide it's easier for me to back a guy down get up a little hook shot take a three drive from the free throw line when otherwise I might have been whipping a pass somewhere right you are taking out like what has made the Nuggets the Nuggets, I think is how I kind of look at it. And Jokic is so good that like this was a close game. Again, we talked about this. A couple shots go a different way. They win this game and they're up 2-0. And like we're talking about how Jokic had 40 and 11 and he, he assumed that scoring burden and, and got it done. But you t- like their, their ability, I think, to get to these upper, upper levels of like their best version is just not as much there. When this when the scoring is up, and again I say, and the other the side of it is the other side of it is this game wasn't to me like the loss isn't about Jokic having to do this. I think it will like I don't. There's a my dad. I don't know why my dad is on Twitter. That's concerning for him. But he sent me a text when we were recording, and it was like a a a, a, a clip of Spo getting. I didn't. I haven't watched the clip yet. Don't know what he said, but I saw the face Spo made. Someone asked Spo about like making Jokic score and Jokic, and his face is like disgusted because he's like this is stupid like this is not like a thing and that's how I feel about it because it's like both a thing in in the sense that like yes it takes Nuggets out of the rhythm but the Nuggets offense was still really good in this game and I think without the KCP and Michael Porter Jr. mess ups and mistakes and like them going to combine two of nine from three like it's just not a talking point but so like I both get it and I, and it's Miami's so- path it is absolutely Miami's path but it is also just like, I don't, it's not the reason that they're losing this game. No, I don't think it's the reason, right? That that's, that's true. And I think, you know, on top of, so what I'll say was different about this game from Jokic scoring standpoint compared to the other ones that I listed off in both of those other game fours where he scored 53 and 43 against Minnesota and Phoenix, he was at 12 free throw attempts and 13 free throw attempts. So right there is a pretty big difference between those games and this game. He only took eight tonight, which isn't like a tiny number, but it's not a big number, especially for somebody with such a mass, uh, a massive size advantage in these games. Um, and then the other thing is he had three turnovers in the other one. And he actually did have six in the Phoenix game where he scored 53. So I think that's the other kind of subplot here is is they got Jokic into not only having to score, but it was really scoring and turning the ball over were the two most common things he did. He only had four assists. So that's big too. Um that that Phoenix game he had eleven assists. And and so yeah. I don't think it's the reason that they lost. And I, what I'll say that's a testament to Spo's face is this was not so much of a forcing Jokic to score thing where they kind of gave him food, somebody really tiny to just bowl over. But it's also very much a choice, which is why I made a face back to Spo's face. Like, they they chose to do that. You know what I mean? Like, they, if you didn't want Jokic to score, you would be doubling him or sending aggressive help, which is what you did at the beginning of game one, and then Aaron Gordon got a bunch of points, and then... You know, your the shooters started to to get going in the first quarter of that game. So it's like you have to make a decision about how to guard somebody. They're making that decision, and he's scoring. I, so it's weird that Spo would be kind of hiding from that, but maybe it's all just gamesmanship. Sure. I also want to. I think Jokic deserves some credit for like having for just kind of being willing to assume some of this stuff. Is the other thing part of this? Because we know Brennan, he does not like to do this. <laughs> This is not like a thing he likes to do. If he, I think I, I don't really believe this when guys like say, "Oh, I'd rather like have ten assists and like be," you know, like I, I like you no, know, you want to score fifty. It's cool. Like I get it. Scoring, scoring feels incredible. Jokic is like one of the few guys where I believe that I think he'd rather have like twenty assists and two points than than like fifty. Like I really believe that. But you see him in this game making choices where like he other I think there's other spots in the regular season earlier in this playoff run or maybe just in other games in the series where he's going to score instead of passing. And I think it's it's in this night, like it was the right decision, right? Like MPJ was bad from the start. KCP was off from the start. Like, I think he deserves credit for making the decision to do it 
because I don't think the right. It didn't feel like anyone else around him had it. Like this was kind of the thing that we want like superstars to do. And like this is where my diseased brain is like going with this, but like I think, I think he's gonna get like picked at for this, and I think that's I just think that's wrong. Like I think that's wrong. He did the thing we like mostly applaud superstars for doing, and he's maybe gonna get like picked at for the next few days before game three, which I just I find very silly. No, what he wants to do in the first quarter of these games is get offensive rebounds and spray passes around. That's like yeah. the most comfortable Jokic game that that you can imagine, and in this game. No offensive rebounds, two assists, one turnover in the first quarter. Played the whole first quarter and had 11 points, five of nine. No one else took more than three shots. So it's like from the jump, just like in game one, you kind of knew what the tenor of the game was going to be from what Miami's defense wanted, and that was what it was. So I don't think that if you tell me that Jokic has 40 in game three, I'm going to say lock in a loss. That would be stupid. But I do think, again, it is a pattern. And again, it is something where... It's hard to do both. And that's why I come back to Jamal Murray. If if he is, if his approach in this game was, I'm not going to score off of Nikola as much, and I just need to be more of a self-creator, I just think that the way that this game flows is different. And yes, he was guarded by Jimmy. Yes, I gave Jimmy his flowers for for doing that effectively, but... I think Jamal can score on Jimmy. I think they can get Jimmy screened off of, of Jamal. Like that, this is not, you know, the panacea for the heat. Okay. Put Butler on him and he's going to just shut down. Like we know Jamal will have more big games before this is said and done. He just needs to maybe think of it as like, sometimes depending on how the flow of the game is going, Joker and I are going to be both self-creative creating scores. We're going to need to play basketball the playoff way that everyone else has to not do our little two man game thing and, you know, blow the team off the map with it. Cause it's just the, he aren't going to just let them do that. Yeah. This is not the time to be overly cute. And at times Denver can probably be a little bit overly cute. Yeah. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, I think that's completely fair. I think people who have covered that team and watched that team a lot say that, you know, that they can kind of play with their food and, um, get a little bit just loose and the finals are not not the time to do that. And now they have a, a, a home L for the first time in the finals. Um, game three will be on but Wednesday. Right. We'll be talking about it, but I yeah. think we can move on to the Pistons unless you had anything well, else. I, two, I wanted, two other things I want to ask you. Number one, we both picked Nuggets in five. How confident are you in feeling? In feeling are you feeling in that pick right now? I'm going to hold to it because why not? But it could be over by the next game and I don't know. But sure, I think I think Denver could still win the next three. I, I don't think that would be a shock. I think they're all going to be close games. Yeah. I think the Heat are too good to just roll over. I They just won a game, so that would be stupid to say. But I don't think this one game changes dramatically how I feel. I agree. I, I just wanted to hit that nail specifically. And I, I also just think Kevin Love, um, curious if he starts next game. I know Caleb Martin had like an illness that kind of limited him, and maybe so maybe they go back to Love coming off the bench. But I kind of think Love should just play, and I think you might need to stagger him in Bam at times just to like put him on the floor and do stuff. Like I that's and again Tyler Hero, his introduction to the series is is a storyline to watch for Game Three. What that looks like, how that impact, like him and Love on the floor at the same time feels just like chances open opportunities to pick if you're Denver. But again, like we've just talked about, like they don't always love to pick in that way. Mm -hmm. But I I think until Miami really makes them pay for having love on the floor in that way, I think he was a real plus in a lot of ways, even with kind of some poor shooting. Like he did enough where I'm just like, probably just got to play him like 15 to 20 minutes. Kevin Love is one of those things on the shooting where it's like, I don't even care about the attempts. If you're just getting two makes from him, I, that's mm-hmm. like a weird way to to describe it, but the alternative is guys who can't. Cody shoot. Zeller. Yeah, exactly. So Cody, it's like to Cody me, Zeller. I kind of you know I don't really care what number of attempts it takes, but if you're getting floor spacing and he's actually just converting those shots, then great. I think it's just funny to me and weird that they haven't figured out the center rotation in such a way. It feels like Spo wants to have these minutes where Bam is on the court when Jokic isn't 
And to me, it's like, you just need to marry those minutes together. And then if you do that, then you don't need to have a traditional backup center. Part of why Zeller is playing is because they're having these minutes where Bam's out and Jokic is in and they need a big body to guard Jokic. It's not working. So even with that said, they should probably find something else. Try Yurtsevin for all I care. It's just Zeller's not working. But yeah, if you the other fix is just, hey, Bam, you're going to play when Joker plays. And then that that's that's the easy have, one. That's the yeah. yeah. And then have love be able to then guard Gordon, which might not go great. Like we talked about, but like make them beat you or or Jeff Green, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, dare, dare, dare them can be to your attack backup Kevin. five. Yeah. Dare them to attack Kevin Love and like Denver also might not do it. That's like a very possible thing that Denver just be like, eh, you know. Yeah, we're, we're I think they'll be more this. ready because they were with with AD, but they're, they seem yeah. to be with that stuff a little bit more of a game-to-game team than an in-game team, so we'll see. But Detroit yeah. Pistons, they the hired Pistons. Monty Williams. Yeah. They are uh, paying more for him than any NBA team is paying for any coach in the league now. By like $2 million? Uh, yeah. It's not even like a barely yeah. thing. No, and it's like up to, I think I saw like up to $100 million with incentives for, for yeah. money. Yeah, it could which, be, which could seems... be eight years, $100 million or something if everything hits. But for now, it's like six for 72, something like that. Yeah, which, and it seems like all the reporting indicates that like it took this kind of like all your chips on the table offer from, from Pistons ownership to like get him to even take this job. Yes, so that's where I want to start is, does this mean that the Pistons are going all in? D- does this alone signify that we should be thinking of this team in a different way than maybe we were if they had hired their version of Will Hardy or pick your rebuilding uh, young coach X? Because there's two patterns with, with Detroit. With Sam Van Gundy, they very clearly went all in, although he was also the GM. So that's a little bit tough to parse, but they traded for Reggie Bullock and Marcus Morris. They signed Aaron Baines. They traded for Tobias Harris at the deadline. And all of a sudden the Pistons were ready to play ball. Then with Dwayne Casey, he came in for like the last year of some of the SVG stuff that was already in place. But then by the year, by year two of Dwayne Casey, things were just really ugly and they never really tried to be very good or at least like veteran laden with him. So they've done it two different mm-hmm. ways, even when they have gone out and tried to get like a flashy name for head coach, which this franchise does have a history of doing. Um, and they have a bunch of cap space if they want to have cap space. So do you feel differently about how Detroit might approach this offseason with their young core than before they hired Monty Williams when we thought they were going to hire Kevin Ollie or so whoever it was going to be? Well, the, the name that I, I think about in comparison, Brendan, is Charles Lee, because this is the highly thought of assistant who was deep in their interview process. It seemed like maybe Ali had the edge or whatever, but I thought of this as like a point of comparison with Lee, because Lee would have kind of fit the mold that we've talked about in a lot of ways. Yeah. Would have kind of been the, the younger guy, the, the guy that hasn't been around getting his first chance at this kind of job to come in and, and build something new. And I think when you hire Monty Williams, you're trying to put your foot on the gas pedal a little bit, which is such an which is not what I expected for where Detroit is at because Cade Cunningham barely played last year. He didn't play, right? He didn't play last year. Yeah, I mean, he played like preseason games or something or whatever. Non-factor in year two after like a very, very good rookie season. Okay, you get Jaden Ivey. Played 12 games. Okay. You were right. Played 12, okay, it's played 12 games. That's not, that's nothing significant. Okay. Brennan, I went to a Pistons, Cav- I covered a Pistons-Cavs game and I just was like, the Cavs were still playing for stuff. The Pistons clearly were just like, had already had their one, two, three Cancun moment. And this was like in March. Like this was like early-ish March, if I'm remembering correctly. This team just felt like it was just like dead. And to go from like that, even, and you have Bojan Bogdanovic, you have like a veteran there. You have like some guys that like, Cade's gonna, I think Cade's going to be really good. This feels like they are trying to aggressively scale this up very quickly with this Monty Williams. That's what this feels like to me. It feels like both like, yes, you hired him for the long term. So you believe that this is like a long term project. But I don't think you hire Monty Williams unless and unless you're a are willing to go and try to improve right now and b sell to him that you're serious about it. Because I can't imagine he is going to be like, let me go from coaching the Phoenix Suns who had Kevin like who were who had aims at winning a title and I made the finals with and and were great with to rebuilding from like not square one exactly because you do have Cade and Ivy and, and a high draft pick coming, but.
but like not you're not like on second base, right? Like you're still trying to figure out like what exactly you are. I think the only reason Monty took this job is the money. I mean, that sounds which, like, like which, more harsh which, than I mean it, but like there's but no like, other reason to do this. I mean, unless you just think the world of Caden, like I guarantee you at the intro press conference, he's going to decide and all of a sudden he's the biggest Cade Cunningham fan on planet Earth. Um, but do you remember when, uh, do you remember when Dwayne, remember when the, the Cade Cunningham makes his bed thing? Do you remember that during the draft process? I hope you bring his eye up as like a nugget. He's like, I love that he makes his bed every day. It's a like funny a thing Casey. to bring up also because um, Cade, very similar to Jason Tatum, has a son. I think that's a good sign of maturity yeah. is a father not makes bed, <laughs> but you know, whatever. But that, uh, but that so, was like, that was like a Dwayne Kate. That was like a Dwayne Casey drafting. He's like, I, I want people who make their bed. That shows me they're disciplined. I love, I bed? love that shit. It's, I do like every morning, every morning. First thing I do when I get up. Wow. I don't, I don't it's do mental, it, it's a mental health thing. There's a, I, I have a good routine. I'm, I'm like pretty good with routine and stuff in the morning, but that's just not one of them. Um, Okay, two housekeeping things to kind of preface our step-by-step fixing of the Pistons. We did this with the Wizards last week, so uh, they can have about 32 to $33 million in cap space if they renounce Corey Joseph, re-sign Hamadou Diallo, which I think they will because he was pretty solid last year for them at a little bit of a raise. I said $6 million, take it or leave it. That's what I think it'll probably be, maybe seven, whatever. They also have a team option on Alec Burks at $10.5 million. And they have the number five overall pick where Troy Weaver said, if it's going to help us move forward, we'll entertain anything. We're excited about this draft pool, but we'll try to move the team forward any way that we can. And so where I, my, my general thoughts here on the Pistons are somewhat of what you mentioned with how dead they looked. If you can convert, if, if all they did, if their main goal in terms of building around this support, this young core was to upgrade the veteran supporting cast that they have from guys you didn't remember were still in the league outside of Bogdanovich to real veteran helping players, I'm all on board. But that's probably the extent of where I would be comfortable going based on where they are. So if you take Corey Joseph and turn that into a real NBA point guard, if you take Alec Burks is actually better than you would think, but I think he's better on a good Good team than a bad team. If you turn him into just maybe like a competent floor spacer rather than a like kind of second, uh, second unit offense guy, which they kind of already have too many cooks in the kitchen with their guard rotation. Anyway, Burks was good for them last year with Kate out, but probably not so much this year. If you do that kind of stuff, you probably can sign me up for that. And I might like it, but if you're saying you're taking a huge step forward or trying to really like go for broke this off season, that's where I get into a little bit of trouble. So we can do the pick in a second with a number five pick, but do you use the number question? Number one, do you use the cap space to sign a vet or keep it open for trades? And do you have any names in mind that for either one of those things you might try to target if you're Detroit and Troy Weaver? I would be going after like younger vets who I think could help you like now and in the future. That's what I would be going at. So these are guys Austin Reeves, Grant Williams, who I think would fit nicely into the Sadiq Bay size hole that they they didn't want to be in the Sadiq Bay, Sadiq Bay business. I get that, but okay, Cam Johnson would be there as well. That's the kind of guy that I would be trying to use my money on. Otherwise, I'm cool with keeping it open for trades because like I think you have to get pieces that maybe help you now, but aren't like overpays to like accomplish nothing. This team they have to I think remember in the back of their heads, but in how many games do you think worse than the, the Charlotte Hornets who were 14th in the East last year do you think the Pistons were? How many games worse? How many games worse than who? The Charlotte Hornets? Who were who were two who finished 14th in the East? How many games back of 14th place did the Pistons finish last year? I mean, I know they were 17 and 65. It doesn't get much worse than that. So I'll say the Hornets won somewhere in the low 20s, so maybe let's say 5 games worse than the Hornets. 10 games worse than the Hornets. The Hornets finished 27 and 55. And I get you that you only wow. had Cade for 12 games, whatever. It is going to be like, it doesn't, even if you bring Cade back and that gives you some wins, it is like going to be, it doesn't happen where you go from like 15 to nine. Like it, that, that kind of scale up would be like really unprecedented and really hard. And this wasn't an injury where Cade like played 
behind the scenes. Like, it seems like he was in significant pain for a lot of this time. So I don't think you're going to be like, yeah. oh, he got better. Uh, this yeah. this is going to be year two for Cade, like for all intents and purposes. Yeah. That's how I would view it. I, I think you should view it that way. So I'd be looking at guys like Reeves, like Grant, like Cam, who fit what you want to do. And if you don't get them because they're RFAs, that's fine. You you don't go spend your money on stuff that's not kind of like really facilitating you and you can't trade forward. Like I think if they went and spent big money on like an older vet on the market, you might be thinking, oh, can you trade that forward? You can make a mistake by spending that money and not being able to trade that guy forward and then it's just kind of clogging up your situation. Even if they wanted like a point guard, let's say, let's say they called Fred Van Vliet, like called Clutch and were like, Fred, what would it take you to, to come to Detroit, be our veteran point guard? Aren't you also stifling to figure out what you have in Jaden Ivey, what you have in, in Kate Cunningham if you go do that? Like I think Fred can play a little off ball and stuff, but it's like that's just like getting eat into the reps of yeah. a already carded guard, guard rotation to me. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say. Part of what's interesting about the Pistons compared to other teams is usually the the kind of hand-in-glove thing, what the Suns did when Monty got there was let's go get a veteran point guard. But for the Pistons, all their, not all of, a lot of their young players are guards between Hayes, Ivy, and Cade. So you don't really want to clog that up too bad. Um, and so that's that's what's tough. That's why I actually think somebody like Bogdanovich did make a lot of sense, and I think they were smart to go get him. And probably why Dwayne Casey was reportedly just like obsessed with the dude, because it's like, you're the only good thing we have here. You're the only stability on this roster. But I have three unrestricted free agent options at varying levels that I want to throw your way to get your reaction. All right. So we'll start at the top. No, we'll start at the bottom. They're all pretty good, though. Harrison Barnes. Do you need him when you have Bogdanovich? I think Harrison Barnes is somebody where probably there's overlap with Bogdanovich. We'll get to Bogdanovich in a second, though. There could be some some movement there, too. And maybe he's more of a replacement for Bogdanovich. But either way, I think somebody at the forward spot, who because that's the other thing. A lot of their young players are also centers. They're guards and centers, so they need wings and forwards. So it's like, to me, if you can get a forward who's played on young teams before, is a very good vet for our everything from everything you always hear and can actually do mm-hmm. something with the ball in his hands and plays both ends of the court. That feels like a good kind of mix where you could imagine like Harrison Barnes dribbling up the court and starting a dribble handoff with Cade to kind of give him training wheels a little bit or the same thing with any of their guards. So that one's that was my favorite because I think you could get him pretty cheap. I like that. I I think you need to just flip Bogdanovich for something else, but I I'm all for it. I I think he is the perfect kind of like older vet that it's like you kind of know there's a limit on what he's going to give you at that spot, so this would buy you time to find like the real solution, but it also probably helps your culture now if he's willing to kind of step into that phase of, of his career and he doesn't stay in Sacramento. And you have enough cap space where if Harrison Barnes is willing to take some smaller type of salary, 14 million or something, you still have enough where you could offer Cam Johnson something, especially if you decline the Alec Burks option, because then you have 40 something million dollars of cap space. Um, so you can start to groom, you know, whatever the next guy might be or have Barnes come off the bench, et cetera. All right. Second tier of free agent unrestricted. Can I interest you in a reunion between the state of Michigan and one Draymond Green? Oh, buddy. I, oh, man. Um, Number one, Matt Ishbia would be like fuming because he's like, you took you took my Spartan. Number two, I Matt look at Draymond say was to unrestricted free agency for the rest of his time as owner. That's that's a that's a joke. Yeah. Um. If Draymond was willing to do it and like really be a leader for a young team in a way that like is just very different than the leadership and the Warriors stuff, right? I would be all for it. I actually don't hate it as much as I thought when I first when I when it came into my brain, I was like, this is going to be fun. We'll just like joke around. But it wasn't really a joke. I actually think it. No, could I love it. Love I it. I think for the big love men, it. it'll help. And the guards, it'll help. It would if if he again, if he was like willing to do this and be like, OK, like I'm leaving Golden State. I'm not going to go try to win titles. I want to just like make a bunch of money and like also be a mentor. Pretty good place for him to do it. And it would probably great from like do it. a pride standpoint, because that's always tough with guys in his particular position. Chris Paul 
has had this difficulty before too, where you kind of don't want to end up in a spot that's just like disrespectful. Whether it's mm-hmm. a trade or, oh, I'm just going to take such and such team's money because I'm a restricted, because I, I want to make more than the Warriors offered me and I just want to like take the PRW and, and move on. Like that sucks. So you don't want to end up in that spot. So, hey, I'm going home. Like that's a way to kind of sell it a little bit. Um, all right. Last one is Chris Middleton. A reunion as well to the franchise that drafted him and then got rid of him like idiots. I don't hate it, but I I also is there what the overlap with Kate, I think is kind of interesting. That feels like a real like you're scaling like Draymond would also feel like you're trying to scale up to something, but Middleton would feel even more so because Middleton is like a playoff shot maker type that it's like, OK, like what is the, what, what do we do? What are we doing with this at this big, big number? And not even like the reputation, at least of being that like culture setting leader that Draymond is in that way. Right. Like or even Harrison Barnes is like that's where he, I think, feels different than those other guys is that we don't understand him. Not to say he isn't that, but we don't understand him as like the leadership guy, whereas he's like, oh, he's like your big wing shot maker type. That's what we have come to understand him as in the context of Giannis's bucks. I think that's fair. That would feel like a too too quick of a step forward. Also, like, I don't know if I, no matter what stage of team building I'm in, want to necessarily be in the business of betting on Chris Middleton to actually still be playable. I mean, all respect to him, but like, you know, from a team building standpoint, that is a risk. And whatever team pays him, the medicals are going to be a key part of that. So if I'm a young team clogging my cap sheet with my one big move, I don't know if I want it to be a guy who hasn't really played consistently for two years. You know, that's not great. So yeah, I think that's where we are. There's also smaller moves, Seth Curry, Terrence Ross, Jermichael Green. Those are just some shooters I found. A lot of their best lineups had Sadiq Bay and them who you mentioned. So I think just what that tells me, it's less about Bay and more just like, hey, when they had actual shooting on the court, they tended to play better. Not a surprise. They should be trying to find that as well. Um, quick hits on on some of these other things. If you could get a, a top 20 pick for Boyan Bogdanovich on draft night, would you do it? No. So just keep him because of the, the value he has for the the other guys? That's where I'm at with it. I, I would rather... Like, if you were going to do that, you should have just done it at the deadline last year. Yeah, agreed. I thought they should have done it at the deadline, too. It felt like they kind of overplayed their hand a little bit there pretending like oh we can get two firsts like on what planet just do the trade do a trade that's out there a real one not one you're pretending is there yeah well him him in detroit already kind of told us like what he went for detroit already kind of told us that his value wasn't maybe as high as like there was posturing to be yeah you know goofy yeah yeah agreed yeah because because danny ainge tried the same thing with the jazz and then all of a sudden it was like hold on that's all that the pistons had to deal for him and then the pistons were like no 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 no, we're gonna get even more and then they did not so it's like yeah i agree just pull the pull the trigger but i think a top 20 pick is pretty good value but you would have to kind of have a backup plan because again you don't want to end up with just complete young youth terribleness on your roster slash slash, like you have like 90 centers and playing like two of them together isn't really going to work so like maybe just like they have options to not play two centers together. All right. Speaking of centers, do you extend Isaiah Stewart in free agency this year? No, no, no. Look, the, the best young center in there, they, they will do for one of them. I suspect it might be Wiseman, but Brennan, the best young center in the roster is Jalen Dirt. That's the best young center in the roster. Well, the like, problem with the Stewart guy is I, we actually don't know if he's a center. He doesn't really have a position because he just shoots threes and that's pretty much all that he does. Rebounds, I guess, pretty well. Yeah, right. But like, right. doesn't really I just play look defense at, like, their on position. anybody. Right. Yeah. No, Jalen Dur- Jalen Duran is absolutely center- the guy that they should be building around. You're right. I'll give it back to you. That that yeah. It's just like I I just look at the centers and I'm just like how do, how do these guys fit? Is how much am I willing to like extend for a backup to Jalen Duran who was 19 last year and was like the best player of these three. And like, unlike yeah. like James Wiseman, like has had spurts of looking like a real NBA player. And like, unlike uh, Isaiah Stewart, like we kind of know what his position is and what he's going to be. Like he had like a really good, interesting rookie season for someone who came into the league at 19. And like, it's, you know, he's 6'10", 250, think he'll get stronger. 
like I, I like what he is quite a bit. And as you build up him, I'm kind of thinking about my center position center on him. So like how much am I willing to spend on those guys? And like, look with Wiseman, I'm sympathetic to like what he's kind of his situation. I don't think like his career has obviously been the easiest thing, but like what, like next I can, is it, he's such a hard thing to project unless you feel great about him. And that's like, okay, we have a backup center then, or like an alternative to Duran if Duran's trajectory kind of goes in a different way than we kind of expect. I get that, but I, it's, it would be a massive bet. I don't even know how to properly evaluate it. Is is the other part of this. It's like, what do, how do you say like, this is how these guys help us scale up and win right now. That's like where I'm looking at both those guys and I don't have an answer to that. I don't, I think Stewart, I would say I would extend Stewart, even if you do just envision him as a backup. Okay, so be it. You drafted a guy who ends up being a backup. That's fine. Um, I think to my my priority being get shooting around your guards, and he does that. The team was plus 1.3 when he played last season. Now, even that was still bad, because like you said, they were miles worse than the next worst East team. But still, he provided value just like Bay, which means, hey, when they had shooting, things went well. So I want to try to keep that, especially with the fact that, again, Duran Wiseman, even Bagley, who for some reason is on this team making $13 million, like though none of those guys shoot. So I want somebody Magic. who can shoot in my center rotation, my big man rotation. Cause I think he can also play next to some of those guys. And I also think like Stewart's probably one of the candidates you would look at and say, Hey, if Monty Williams can come bring a little bit more out of this group schematically, especially on offense, I think Stewart's one of the candidates to just feel better about after this season, right? Like he's one of those guys you could yeah. say, Hey, Monty helped because he had a note, a, a, a clear skill and Monty like put him in position to make that skill useful to the team. Even if it's in 12 minutes yeah. a game, so be it. So I'm, I would probably try to do something with Stewart for like, I don't know, however much you're going to pay Grant Williams. Offer that to Isaiah Stewart, something like that. Uh, like I would like three fourths of what you would pay Grant Williams. Okay, so maybe you offer Grant fifteen and you offer Stewart twelve. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I think Wiseman. I would just not. I mean, I know we all know the Wiseman stuff, but like he got more than six hundred minutes as a Piston last season and had a minus four point three box plus minus, which is atrocious. Like. He did play, and it did yeah. not go well. All right. Um, number five pick. Keep it. Trade it. Trade back. Keep it. Keep it. Just keep it. keep it. Like, unless someone blows you away and, like, gives you, like, a couple picks or, like, a future pick or something, I, I don't see the reason, you know, not to to trade back or to give up this pick. Like, you still should be in, like talent acquisition mode if you're Detroit. This is what this era is about. You have a top five pick. You did, didn't get as... Obviously, like, the, the optimum thing here would have been to get up to, like, two or three and get one of these really game-changing guys. Like, Brandon Miller would have made, I think, sense for them as, like, another wing. Even Scoot, I think, would have been someone you really could have looked at. Five's, like, a little bit tricky for them. But if you come away with, like, Cam Whitmore, who's really young, but, like, could be, like, your successor to what Bogdanovich is, will fit nicely with what Ivy and Dern and Cunningham are. Like that to me is a really nice outcome. And I would just take the guy you feel like you can build with. I wouldn't get too cute with this. I wouldn't be trying to trade this for anything win now. You don't have the pressure that maybe Portland does with the Dame situation. So you don't have that hanging over you, right? Like Cade's not out here saying like, I, I, I need to win a title like today. Like he, there's a, there's a road to go still here with Cade. And like, what, what, what is trading back? Unless someone is going to blow you away and like, just give you future assets to play with, which I don't think will happen for five in this class. Mm -hmm. I don't really see a point of trading back for like a protected future first or like some seconds, like just take Cam Whitmore, just take whatever Thompson twin is still there. Take, take one of the guys you like there and profit from it and, and move on from like Whitmore to me would be like a great pick for them at five. If he's there, it seems like Pistons fans kind of like Jarris Walker from Houston as well. Somebody who, could be a kind of a forward option for them can shoot it a little bit and does a lot of really high IQ, high impact things with that Houston team that I think, I think plays a pretty pro ready system that mm -hmm. I would feel good betting on. I mean, we just saw Quentin Grimes come out and, and be ready to contribute on a playoff team right away. I would, I would be willing to bet on those guys. So like somebody like that, I, I think they got kind of screwed, not only not getting one, obviously to not get Wemby, but um, to, not even get in the top three because I think that's really the only spot you could have gotten somebody to want to trade up. No one's going to trade up to five in a three-player draft. 
it's really a one player draft, but like nobody's going to trade up to five in this draft where everything after three is sort of eye of the beholder. Like unless they play the smokescreen game at an elite level and try to, Hey, we heard the team at eight really wants Whitmore. We're, and then we're going to put out for months that we or weeks that we want Whitmore and hope that something comes together, which like that never works. So I'm, 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 I'm with you. Just take the player, take somebody who fits preferably a wing or a forward, because that's what you need try to develop them, hope that Monty is patient enough to do that and and see what happens. Brendan, let me ask you this as we get towards the end here. Over under two and a half seasons before the Pistons are back in the playoff. Oh, um, I think the bottom of the East is bad enough or at least in flux enough where I will say under because I just think that they'll make, they've shown us over time that they will do what it takes to get the eight seed if they want it. So that's more about them than it is about the talent on the roster right now or anything like that. I'm going to lean over just because like, I like the Magic's future better. I think I like the Pacers' future a little bit better. Um, I don't think like a lot of the other teams above them are planning on like going anywhere anytime soon. So obviously some of that will change. Someone will fall off in that, in that, you know, that group we saw last year. I was thinking like Brooklyn but, and Atlanta are two where I could, if they yeah. took a step back in the next three to five years, it wouldn't blow me away. Cause they're in that mode a little bit, but yeah, yeah, I, I'm just, I'm going to go over just because like, I think there's stuff in there that's going to make it, they're going to, I think they're going to get better and get to that. Like in two years be like a like get closer to like 500 like i think that's like the kind of the path around but i think i, th- I think this is still kind of i th- this feels like a slow build to me even with money i just can't see where like this is accelerated super quickly for next year and if they try to do that that that's gonna get them back here like again like they'll they'll, they'll be winning 17 games again in like three years if you, you hit accelerate too fast even with money even with draft capital, even with some money to spend, I think if you accelerate too fast, you get yourself in a lot of trouble. Yeah, the big thing is and they already they have, have Cade. And Cade's yeah. premium position, premium skill set, he's the piece you try to find. They already found it. So they're in a better position than a lot of teams are, but uh, the rest of the stuff is a big question mark. I don't think any of their other young players you feel great about. Maybe Duran, but he's at a position that you don't always see teams invest in and has a pretty old-fashioned skill set. So even he at like 1920 is is not exactly a surefire thing to be an awesome contributor for a playoff team. But that'll wrap us up. We'll be back after game three. Hit follow or subscribe wherever you're finding this show. A big thanks to Dylan Heiser and Jake Stevens for production as always. We'll talk to you guys next time.